Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts. For you are a gracious and merciful God who allows us the privilege to worship you on this day which you have created. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our many sins. We thank you that Christ has provided that forgiveness for us. And we pray that as we think upon all that he did to accomplish our salvation this day, that our hearts would be moved in a manner to worship you in the way that is pleasing to you. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sins, that you did not ignore our plead for forgiveness, but that you sent your only begotten Son to die for his people on Calvary and to rise from the grave so that we might have life, so that we might have fellowship with the living God. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge as we study your word today, that we would be able to retain that truth that we need so that we might live a life that is pleasing to you. We know, Father, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, that only the righteousness of Christ is pleasing to you, And we thank you, Father, that he was willing to leave his heavenly throne and come to this earth and dwell among sinful men as we and earn us that righteousness that we could not earn. We pray, Father, that as the gospel is preached throughout the world today, that many would be brought into your kingdom. We continue to pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bring about an awakening in our day in this country. Turn us from our evil ways. Turn us from our evil laws. Give us righteousness to flood this land. Return this land to the God of our fathers. We pray, Father, that you would work in our midst today, that you would open eyes, unstop ears, bring people to Christ, sanctify your children, cause us to be more like Christ so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. We pray for those that are unable to be with us this day, Father. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you would meet those reasons and needs. We pray that you would bring an end to this virus. We pray that we might be able to all gather together in this place again. We pray that you'd be with those that watch over live stream this day, that they might join in with us, and that you may speak to them through the preaching of your word as well. Pray that all that would be done and all that would be said would be pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and we will return to the Gospel of Mark today. As you know, last week we took a detour and looked at the Gospel of Luke because what we saw there in Luke is not included here in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin reading with verse 6 through Verse 15. Mark 15, beginning with verse 6. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow insurrectionists. They had committed murder in the insurrection. Then the multitude cried aloud and began to ask him to do just as he had always done, for them. But Pilate answered them and said, saying, 
Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest has handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done that they cried out more exceedingly, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus afterwards, after he had scourged him to be crucified. Unlike last week, this particular passage that we just read is in all four of the Gospels. Children, the Gospels are how many? Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this particular passage that we just read is found in all four of them. Remember, the Gospels are telling us the same story about who Jesus is and how we find salvation. They're very important. Now, this passage reveals to us how the Jews wanted Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. We could say that this is a very sad commentary concerning the Jews and their spiritual condition. They were religious, but they were wicked. Now, we know this is because of their religious leaders. They were no better than their religious leaders. Who are the very ones that has brought Jesus to the trial? Well, it was the religious leaders. And they were wicked. And we see that quite often in the Gospels. Jesus brings it up time and time again what kind of people they were. But we also see it in our day and time. The majority of religious leaders in our day are no more spiritual than your average pagan. They don't believe in biblical inerrancy. They don't believe in the miracles. They don't even believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Now you say, well, I, I just don't believe that. Well, that's because you live in the Bible Belt. And in the Bible Belt, it seems as if all people believe these truths. But of course, that's not the case either. And it's becoming more and more clear. Alistair Begg shared a response that a particular professor wrote in opposition to Christianity being taught in the schools. He was very opposed to it. He himself was a religious professor at one of the denominational universities. And what upset him so much is that those who were teaching this Christianity in school were suggesting that they were teaching truth about Jesus Christ, about His miracles, about His claims, about His resurrection, that they were all true and valid. Then did you hear what I said? The opposition was coming from a religious professor at a denominational university. He didn't say which denominational university it was, but I have my ideas. But what we have is a secular mindset. His secularism was clothed in a religious robe. Such people turned our seminaries in the early 1900s to liberalism. 
we had a number of them in the Southern Baptist Convention that went strongly liberal. The most liberal, of course, was Southern Seminary. And we thank God what he has done over the last 40 years in bringing Southern Seminary to be the most conservative of all seminaries now in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's no doubt in my mind that God worked a glorious miracle in bringing that seminary back to the truth. But we saw last week that Herod didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. He only entertained Jesus coming into his presence because he wanted to be entertained. But Jesus would not submit to his wishes and said, therefore, Herod sent him back to Pilate. And as the scripture says in Isaiah 53, led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. Jesus was clearly fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, yet these religious leaders could not even see that. That's how blind they were. Those who said they understood the Scriptures did not understand the Scriptures. They could not even see this prophecy right before their eyes being fulfilled. Jesus was called the Lamb of God. John the Baptist had called Him the Lamb of God. They had heard this preaching by John the Baptist that He was the Lamb of God, but they could not put two and two together and get four because they were so spiritually blind. They were unwilling to examine the Scriptures to make sure they understood the Scriptures rightly. Even Herod and Pilate could see their hatred, their envy, their injustice. But they did nothing to rescue Jesus from this travesty. Neither one of them had the backbone to stand up against the religious leaders and the Jews. So therefore they allowed the crowd to take charge. Now in this passage we come to what we could say the climax of the trial. Pilate will ask... What do you want me to do with Jesus? This is a question that is very important. Every one of us must answer this question at some point in our life. And that's what I want us to zero in on this morning by looking at four points. First of all, a tradition each year on the eve of the Passover took place, and that tradition was to pardon a criminal, to give him clemency. Now, we know this as presidential pardons. Matter of fact, President Trump has already given 10 pardons in his first year as president. Most wait to the very end to give most of their pardons. Bush, number 41, gave 77 pardons. Bush, 43, gave 200 pardons. Obama gave 1,929 pardons. FDR gave 2,812 pardons. They say, and they didn't keep count till I think it was FDR, they say that Andrew Johnson gave over 7,000 pardons. Only two presidents didn't give any pardon. William Harrison, who only served two months and died from pneumonia, didn't give any pardon. And then James Garfield, who only served seven months before he was assassinated, didn't give any pardons. But here we see that this was 
a practice, a tradition. And somehow the Jews had convinced the Roman authorities to allow this tradition to continue. We see there in John chapter 18, and I will refer to the other Gospels since we won't be returning to them. Uh, you won't have to do your Bible drill this morning, but I'll just mention them to you. But in John 18, 39, it says, Pilate, it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So we see that he calls it a custom, a tradition. It was a custom that's not found anywhere in the Old Testament or in the rabbinical writings. So it probably started as a gesture of goodwill toward the Jews to pacify them due to the many miscarriages of justice that had been carried out against them. Charles Spurgeon points out that this was not a good practice of public justice. He says that the ruling authorities should discharge a criminal, someone quite irrespectably of his crime and his repentance, letting him loose upon society simply and only because a certain day must be celebrated in a peculiar manner. And he's right. To simply pardon somebody, even though they haven't repented of their crime, even though they haven't done their time, allows them to go back into society and continue to bring problems. Now, of course, if a certain person has clearly shown repentance and clearly done things to be restored to society, yes, there's nothing wrong with pardoning that person. We've seen that, and that was one of the people that... Uh, Trump pardoned, we saw uh, a young or middle-aged uh, African-American lady who clearly has repented. It, it appears that God has done a wonderful work of grace in her life, and she's testified of that. And that should continue. Now, as I mentioned before, it may have been to improve relationships between the Romans and the Jews. Pilate had done a number of things to cause great tension between these two groups. Josephus mentioned some of these in his historical book. He said, first of all, that Pilate, when he first came to power, he brought in the <clears throat> imperial standards, images with Caesar on it, and he set those up there in Jerusalem as well as in Herod's Pilate. Uh, I mean, Herod's palace. Uh, and that could be why there was a hatred between Herod and Pilate. He set those up right in his palace. And of course, that didn't make Herod happy, nor did it make the Jews happy. Matter of fact, as a result, a crowd, or you could call it a mob, of Jews surrounded Pilate's house, where he was staying, for five days. Now, you've seen on the news recently that they have gone to certain senators' house and surrounded them and all kinds of things that do, and usually it only lasts a day or so, but can you imagine five days of being surrounded in a mob yelling at your house and all this, and eventually Pilate summons them to the arena, and the soldiers drew their swords and surrounded them, and the Jews showed no fear. Matter of fact, they pulled down their collars and bore their neck, and Pilate relented and removed the standards from Jerusalem and Pilate, I mean Herod's temp, uh, palace. As governor, Pilate also appointed the high priest. 
Caiaphas was appointed by Pilate. He continued to serve. He served the entire time that Pilate was governor of Jerusalem. And this is probably why he was able to use the money from the temple treasury to construct uh, an aqueduct there in Jerusalem. Now when the Jews heard about this, again they formed a mob. But this time Pilate sent his soldiers and they beat many of the Jews with clubs and many of them were killed as a result and trampled also by horses. Of course, this did not excite the Jews neither. And then one final thing that Pilate did, and we know this for sure, not from Josephus, but from the scriptures. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, it says, "...whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifice." So for some reason, he had a number of people murdered as they were sacrificing an offering. We don't know why. The scripture does not tell us, but we do know that it happened. So this particular tra uh, tradition of setting a prisoner free seems to have been something to promote good PR between the Romans and the Jews. It also fits well into biblical prophecy. One thing that the Messiah would come and do is to bring freedom to the prisoners. And the Old Testament also required that every 50 years, which was the year of Jubilee, all slaves and prisoners were to be set free, which emphasized God's love for His people. Now the Jewish forefathers were slaves. They had been in the house of bondage there in Egypt, and we know that God finally gave them liberty after over 400 years of captivity. So this practice of releasing a prisoner at every uh, Passover Eve was something that fit into the Jewish history. And Passover was the best time to remember being set free since the mill pointed toward them being released from Egypt. But it's very puzzling that Pilate injected this at this particular time. I mean, we cannot help but wonder what his motive was. Did he really think that the crowd would ask for Jesus to be released? We know that he did not want to condemn Jesus to death. He was looking for some way to get out of this predicament that he was in. Even his own wife had told him, have nothing to do with that man as a result of a dream that she had. Now, of course, this particular dream that she had, it was not that God was speaking to her in some dream or anything like that. No, she had this on her mind. And a lot of times when you have something on your mind and you go to bed, you dream about that. That's what happened on this particular situation. And she said, don't have anything to do with this man, Jesus. So yes, it appears that he really thought that the people would release Jesus, especially if he gave them a choice between this hardened rebel murderer, Bar Bar Barabbas, and he puts them side by side and he says, surely they will choose Jesus over Barabbas. Now, of course, we see that he had a backup plan. If that didn't work, then he was going to have Jesus whipped and beaten in such a way that it would so shock the people that they would feel compassion toward Jesus and they would change their mind and they would then release Him. As we'll see in point two, Pilate's plan doesn't come about as he thought. The crowd doesn't follow his lead. They do not listen to him. Now second, 
the crowd we see desires Barabbas, a hardened, rebellious murderer. They desired that he would be released instead of Jesus. Now this character, Barabbas, is unknown to us. This is the first time in Scripture that we see anything about this man called Barabbas. His name actually means son of his father. Bar, son, uh, Abba, father. So son of his father. And that's to say that he most likely was the son of a rabbi. Now, he would have been, as a result, a man of privilege, descended from a family of prestige, well-educated. And he's called by various names in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we see he's called a murderer, a rebel, a criminal, a robber, notorious. Now, he was the most... Like, he was most likely arrested with two other men. Who are those two other men? Well, the two other men that were put on the cross with Jesus. There were insurrectionists. All three of them were arrested. His, his cross would have been the middle cross. But yet he's set free. As it says there in verse 27, robbers, so these two robbers with him, and they were crucified. Now, he also was most likely a zealot, one who sought to overthrow the Roman government. The zealots were known for murdering Romans as well as sympathizers, Jewish sympathizers. They were known by carrying a dagger around and they would get into a crowd and they'd go up and they would stab a Roman soldier, stab a Roman citizen, or stab a Jewish sympathizer to put them to death. He also represented emancipation from Rome and a political revolution. If he was alive today, he would be a leader of Antifa. He would be right there in the middle of it. He would be rebelling against the government. Now, there were two names on the ballot, Barabbas and Jesus, son of his father, against Son of the Eternal Father. I mean, the choice was very clear. But again, we see that Pilate has a desire to release Jesus. And he speaks to the crowd and he says there in John chapter 18, verse 3, I find no guilt in Him. I mean, he was doing everything he could to get across to the people. There's no reason whatsoever to put Jesus to death. He hasn't done anything. Now, back in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, it gives us a little bit of light. He says, For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So we see that Pilate saw their envy. Pilate wasn't dumb. I mean, he had dealt with many political situations. He understood what was going on here. He then turns and he asks the crowd, what do I do with the Christ? Do you want the Christ or do you want the criminal? Who do you want? And they responded, release Barabbas. Now, no doubt, this must have stunned him. I mean, he felt that he had done all that he could reasonably, possibly, that they would release Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as any threat to his own position or to the emperor's position. Sinclair Ferguson said, 
What amazed him was that these Jews whom he despised were determined to reject Jesus. It did not seem to make sense. What had Jesus done to make the religious leaders so envious of Him? Why should they reject someone who claimed to be their king? Pilate must have realized that there was something beyond human explanation in what was taking place before their eyes. But alas, he never clearly saw what it was. And we know. We know that to be true. There was something happening behind the scenes. What was happening behind the scenes? God was bringing about His decreed will. He was overriding anything that would hinder Jesus from going to the cross. So we see that Pilate seeks to pacify the crowd. He is willing to release this violent, murderous man, Barabbas. Barabbas won the vote as far as being released. And we see from this simply that the majority vote doesn't make it right. Just because one group is more vocal than another group, that doesn't mean that the vocal group is right. Why is abortion the law of the land? Because seven Supreme Court justices out of the nine decided that it was okay that a baby would be murdered in the womb. That's why in 1973, and it became the law of the land. But it's not the law of God's Word. It's a violation of God's Word. And that's one reason why we as a nation are under the judgment of God. Why is same-sex marriage illegal? Because in 2015, five of the nine Supreme Court justices thought that it's okay If a man wants to marry a man or a woman wants to marry a a woman. And of course, one of those justices was supposed to be a, quote, conservative justice. Why is it that always the conservatives are the ones that give in to the liberals? Have you ever seen the liberals go the opposite way on the Supreme Court? I thank God that we have a president that has put up a conservative, one that is following in the path of Anthony Scalia. We need justices that interpret the Constitution as it ought to be interpreted, originalists. And we need to pray for her as she goes before this wicked bunch of people that would seek to destroy her just as they tried to destroy Kavanaugh. We need to pray that God would protect her and her family and that God would use her to side with the other conservatives to where this law of abortion of the land is overturned. We must pray that it will be overturned because God is not pleased with unborn babies being murdered in the womb. Pastors who preach God's Word faithfully have been voted out of their pulpit by a majority. Again, I say just because there's a majority doesn't make it right. Even in the church. Just because there's a majority in the church doesn't make it right. That's why God has placed elders in the church to be ruling elders. 
Just because a congregation may vote the majority, that does not mean that the elders cannot overrule the congregation. Now, when elders do overrule the congregation, it will only be because there is clear biblical evidence to overrule the congregation. So they do not take that practice lightly. They make sure that they bathed it in much prayer before they would go to the congregation and say, no, we must overrule you on this issue because thus saith the Lord. And that's why they would overrule the congregation. So therefore we see that in this case, even though the majority voted to let Barnabas, not Barnabas, uh, Barabbas free, they were wrong. But why, what did Jesus think? What did he think as he was going through all this? Did he protest? Did he object to his name being put on the ballot with Barabbas? Did he have a choice? Yes, he did. He had a choice. He had power to cause this mob to cry out for his release. But he did nothing. He was like a lamb, a sheep. He was silent. Instead, he submitted to the ordained will of his heavenly Father. He stood there in full consciousness of who he was that He was the anointed Son of God, that He had committed no transgression, no iniquity, no sin, and in whose mouth there was found no guile, the Scripture says. He knew that He was the holy, just One who always did that which was pleasing to the Father. For Jesus Christ to be put on par with this murderer was a disgrace. And it reveals how evil man can be. But what is more horrifying is that the Jews would choose a murderer over the incarnated, innocent Son of God. I mean, there was a clear choice. Righteousness versus wickedness. Divine glory against darkness. But as the Scriptures teach us, men love darkness rather than light. So Jesus deeply humbled Himself, allowed Himself to be numbered with the transgressors, And God is making Jesus of Nazareth to be sin right before our eyes. For only Jesus Christ could pay our sin debt so that we might be brought into a saving relationship with God the Father. He had to go to the cross and He knew it and He willingly went. Third, Pilate asked this question, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? Verse 12. Now you may think, well, I'm glad that men aren't like that today. Well, if you think like this, then you have simply closed your eyes to what is going on around us. Mobs continue to carry out injustice. I've learned a little bit about how mobs 
get caught up in the moment and how it reveals how wicked their heart is. Sociologists have studied mob action. And they have a name for it. It's de-individualization. It's when a person loses all sense of personal identity. And instead of having personal identity, he identifies with the mob. And we're seeing it today. I mean, we're seeing it on the news each day. How the mobs are destroying cities in America. Seattle, which has been a liberal city for many, many years. In 2001, a 26-year-old girl decided that she was going to commit suicide. She went to a bridge there in Seattle, which was built in 1931, I believe. It's very known for people committing suicide. After a breakup, she went there. She climbed out on the bridge to jump. And when that happened, of course, they stopped traffic from both sides. And the motorists, they began to get out of their cars. And they were so irritated with her doing this that they began to say, jump, jump. And she did. 230 suicides off that particular bridge. In 2008 in England, a 17-year-old boy threatened to jump. A crowd gathered together below of 300 people. And as they watched him, they began to video it and they began to post it as a result. Excited being entertained, encouraging him to go ahead and jump so they could video it and post it online. In 2010 in San Francisco, a similar thing happened with a young man and they began to tweet about it and post it live as the action was taking place. I mean, the behavior of people is almost unbelievable, but they get caught up in a mob. There's no individualism. There is this de-individualism to where they group together with these mobs and become irrational in their mindset. So when the crowd was asked, what then do you want me to do with Jesus? They cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. And we see here in the Scriptures, it says that the chief priests were stirring Him up to holler, crucify Him. They were encouraging the people to cry out. I mean, can you believe that they would desire to crucify the Son of God, the sinless One, the One that is perfect, the One who had never done anything wrong, but always done that which was pleasing in His Father's sight. There are some here who are just like these Jews. You come face to face with Jesus Christ as He is presented in the Gospel. And what do you do with Him? You join the crowd and you disown Him. You reject Him. How sad. The Son of God the one who has come to save His people from their sins, and you reject Him. In Mark's Gospel, Pilate asked, 
Do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? There in verse 9, in Luke, the people yelled back at him, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! But Pilate at first didn't accept their first reply. So therefore he appeals to them. But what do they do? They shout even more, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate states, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But they didn't accept that. They cried even louder and louder with more intensity that Jesus be crucified. And the shouts prevailed. And Pilate decided to grant them their demands. So he released Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the robber, the thief. You say, I would have voted that Jesus would be released. But that's because you are a redeemed sinner. Washed in the blood of Christ. Your desire, you say, would be to see that Jesus be set free, not die. But are you sure? Think about it. You who glory in the cross of Christ, would you have delivered Jesus from the cross? Would you say, wouldn't bear the thought of Him being crucified? That you love Him too much? But He came as the Lamb of God. And He had to go to Gotha. Otherwise, no one would be saved from their sins. His mission from the very beginning was the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does He take away the sins of the world? By going to the cross. So for Him not to go to the cross, there would be no salvation. Did Jesus want to be delivered from the cross? No. Did He want to be delivered from drinking the cup that his father had ordained for him to drink? No. Did he want to be delivered from death? No. For he knew that it was through this means that he would save his people from their sins. And he stood before Pilate and the mob and chose to save his people from their terrible judgment by enduring their judgment in himself. In this way, He saves His people. Jesus Christ would have never chosen to receive amnesty, to receive a pardon, to receive clemency. No, He died so people might receive amnesty. So that we might receive pardon. So that we might be forgiven from our sins. He earned that for us by going to the cross by taking our punishment upon Himself so that you and I might go free. Finally, I close with this question. What will you do with Jesus? 
the Messiah. Pilate knew that Jesus was a good and blameless man. And he faced the same question that I just posed. He didn't know what to do. But he did know enough to make the right decision. But he doesn't. And this is a vital question that every person is confronted with when you come to the gospel and you must ask. So you can't avoid this question. What shall I do with Jesus who called the Messiah, the Christ? You can't go on trying to be neutral. Some of you sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you try to be neutral. You cannot be neutral. You either accept Him or you reject Him. There's no neutrality. Pilate tried to be neutral, but he ended up rejecting Him. You must make a decision about this Jesus who is called the Messiah. Don't pretend to be neutral. If you pretend to be neutral, in reality, you are rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, He who is not with me is against me. Did you hear that? These are the words of Jesus. He who is not with me is against me. If you sit here today and you are not converted, then you are against Jesus Christ, not for Him. So don't try to be neutral. Don't try to play games. Jesus knows. God knows you either accept Him or you reject Him. You must Make a decision for Jesus. On February the 13th, 1938, Eric Nash, a clergyman and a school teacher, gave a talk to some Christian boys at a Union rugby school. And his text for them was this very question of Pilate. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ. There was a teenage boy in that crowd, John Stott. And this was his reaction. That I needed to do something with Jesus was an entirely novel idea to me. For I imagined somehow he had done whatever needed to be done. And that my part was only to consent. This Mr. Nash, however was quietly and powerfully insisting that everybody had to do something about Jesus and that no one could remain neutral. Even we copied, either we copy Pilate and weakly reject him or we accept him personally and follow him. After privately talking with Mr. Nash and taking the rest of the day to think further, That night, by my bed, I made the experience of faith and opened the door to Christ. I saw no flash of lightning. In fact, I had no emotional experience at all. I just crept back into my bed and went to sleep. For weeks afterwards, even months, I was unsure of what may have happened. But gradually, I grew. 
as the diary I was writing at the time makes clear into a clearer understanding and a firmer assurance of the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ. Like John Stott, Pilate initially tried to avoid the question. He didn't want to put his whole life on the line for Jesus. He didn't want to put Jesus on the cross, but neither did he want to release Jesus. He tried to remain neutral. He wanted other people to make the choice while sitting on the fence. He wanted to avoid the issue, but he could not avoid the question. Pilate had to decide to either bow before the Son of God or be against the Son of God. If you say you are not really against Jesus, but you're not really for Him either, you are saying that Jesus has no claim on your life. That you don't recognize Him. That you do not recognize Him as Lord and God and you're saying that you don't want His love. You're rejecting His love. You're saying that you don't need His blood to cover your sins. That you're really not that bad of a person. That you're okay and that God's going to accept you Because you've done better things, more better things, more good things than bad things. And you also think that you can get into heaven without Christ. Hebrews 2 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's he implying? You can't. You cannot escape if you you neglect such a great salvation. Neglecting salvation is no better than rejecting salvation. When you try to be neutral like Pilate, then you are rejecting Christ. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? It's a question that you cannot avoid or be neutral about. It's also a question that won't allow you to plead ignorance. You may be thinking, well, I just don't know enough yet. I don't know enough about salvation. I don't know enough about the gospel. But yet the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came to save His people from their sins, that He is the only way to heaven. You cannot plead ignorance. Respond to the gospel. Repent of your sins. Believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Yes, it may cost you much. Christ, I mean, Pilate was afraid. Afraid of the people. Afraid of losing his position. Eventually, he did lose his position. He was removed from his office in 36 A.D. And just a few weeks later, he was dead. They don't know whether he was murdered or whether he committed suicide, but he was dead. Pilate entered into an eternal hell because he loved himself more than he loved God and he continued to reject Jesus Christ 
because he tried to be neutral. A commitment to Jesus Christ may even cost you your very life on this earth, but it will give you eternal life. As Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? We know the answer to that. There is no good, but only in Christ. If like Pilate you continue to refuse to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, you will lose your soul. You will lose any hope of salvation. One thing that we need to realize, Jesus Christ was not on trial. Pilate was the one on trial. He stood before Jesus. And so you likewise are on trial. You stand before Jesus. What will be your response? Whatever your response is will reveal your destiny. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath abides on him. There's the two choices right there. Eternal life or the wrath of God. I close with these words from an old hymn. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your soul will be asking, what will He do with me? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, the Gospel has been shared again. And we must hear. We must respond. We must not remain neutral. Do not allow anyone to continue to reject the Gospel. Send your Spirit to work in hearts, to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh so that they may respond to Christ, so they may repent of their sins and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Do not allow any, Father, to continue to seek to be neutral in rejecting Christ, but cause them to see the horror of their sin and that they are under the wrath of God so that they may flee to Christ for safety and salvation. Cause us, Father, who are Christians, to understand the seriousness of the gospel and to be faithful in our walk with Christ and our commitment to Him and to be faithful in telling others to look to Christ as their only hope in salvation. And this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.